1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values,
2: and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: Well, welcome, everyone, and, and thank you for coming out and uh, not playing hooky on such a, a day with such beautiful weather, uh, you know, it, uh, I think if, if we say that the event went on to 5 or 5.30, we'll just cover for you, and you all can go uh, play hooky and go for a nice walk outside. <laughs> um, well, I think the uh, the timing of this uh, conference is very good. Obviously, we're on the eve of President Moon's uh, arrival in uh, Washington. I understand he arrives in just a few hours. Um and uh, obviously there's going to be a very important summit between Presidents Trump and Moon, really to try to figure out where we both go from here. Uh, I think South Korea, like many of us, were surprised by what happened uh, in Hanoi. At least to me, it had seemed, reading all the tea leaves from Steve Began's speech and comments by Secretary Pompeo, uh, that the U.S. was – however you want to describe it, lowering the bar, going softer, becoming more pragmatic, uh, and that, uh, you know, that the U.S. was going to accept kind of a continuation of what I would call the North Korean paradigm that we accept, accepted in the, uh, accepted in the um, Singapore summit. Uh, and then right on the eve of the Hanoi summit, there was media reporting that I think was quite accurate about the four or five points of what became known as a small deal that it looked like we were going to accept. So on that night, uh, you know, I'd gotten home at about midnight from my last interview, and the press uh, or the uh, summit statement was going to be released at 2 a.m. our time, and the press conference was going to be at 3.50 a.m. our time. So I set the alarm for 3 a.m. to get up and read the summit statement, uh, and instead I woke up and find out the president had already gone wheels up from uh, Hanoi, and I'm frantically sending emails to Olivia, who is in Hanoi, like, what happened, you know? And we had this frantic exchange of ideas, and so I ripped up the the draft of why I thought a small deal was a bad deal, uh, and had to start from scratch. So it was a bit of a of a scramble. Um, so you know, I think we also have a pretty clear uh, difference of view between Washington and Seoul on how to proceed. And I think a lot of President Moon's agenda will be on trying to convince or implore the U.S. to have another summit, to lower the bar, to you know, accept a, a step-by-step or an incremental approach as opposed to what it seemed like coming out of Hanoi, we've adopted a, a higher bar of kind of, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, the big deal or, you know, no denuclearization until we get or no benefits on sanctions until we get um, significant denuclearization. Um, so to, to discuss these issues, we have a very uh, distinguished panel uh, first, with Scott Snyder from Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Jung Pak from Brookings, also a former CIA alumnus, of, uh, as I am, uh, and then Olivia Enos from Heritage. Now, what I've sort of directed or suggested to them is sort of the lanes and the road will be Scott will start with talking about the U.S. ROC relationship and uh, what President Moon's objectives may be. Uh, Jung is going to look at the Hanoi summit with, and then recommendations for. U.S. policy. Uh, and then Olivia is going to raise the, oh yeah, North Korean human rights. It seems to have fallen off the table in the last uh, year since Singapore, and it shouldn't. Um, but also, the, the lanes in the road will have a very low curb, so everyone will feel free to, to jump the curb and go into the other lanes as we get into uh, Q&A. Um, and one final point is if you like this panel, actually you'll be able to re- see it most of it again when Scott, Jung, and I are going to be in, in Seoul in about two weeks on the same panel uh, at the Asan Plenum. Uh, so we'll, I guess we'll fix any mistakes we make and then do it the second time in, in Seoul. So anyway, thank you again for uh, joining us, and I'll open the floor to Scott.
3: Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much, Bruce, for the chance to come over, uh, and thank you all for coming out. And actually, Bruce has given me just enough. I usually agree with almost everything that Bruce has to say, but he's given me just enough to actually generate some disagreement uh, and hopefully generate some debate, even though he's the moderator. So maybe I have an unfair advantage today. I don't know. It depends on how he plays his moderator role. Uh, And so I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than Bruce about managing any potential gaps uh, between uh, President Moon and President Trump. Um, And I also see um, an an upside to what I think can uh, unfold from this, uh, which compared to the other possible untraveled alternatives is a much better path. And so let me try to explain what I uh, mean by that. First, I I think that for President Moon, I mean, he was um, uh, a spectator along with everybody else um, uh, in watching what was happening in Hanoi. I'm sure that he was shocked because he is probably the individual that uh, had the greatest stake in trying to see some kind of continued uh, progress. Uh, because, after all, he's the one who, after Pyeongchang Olympics, uh, cleared this roadway toward uh, peaceful denuclearization uh, that, up until then, was not a visible roadway. It was not a a visible path. Uh, And now he sees uh, the falling rock and the risk of an avalanche that might cover up that particular pathway, and he wants to try to do some uh, road clearing Uh, And so I think that that, along with his desire, which is a much more distant desire, I think, for uh, progress in terms of uh, inter-Korean economic integration, uh, you know, those are the stakes and the risks uh, for uh, Moon. He wants to salvage his signature initiative, but he has to also do it, and this is where I think it's important, he has to do it in such a way that he demonstrates no gaps Uh, in the approach with the United States. And so um, I do think that there are some differences between what Moon's preferred pathway is and what Trump's preferred pathway is. Namely, Moon wants to pursue uh, what I like to call a denuclearization-embedded peace process, and the U.S. prefers a peace-embedded denuclearization process. Uh, But I think there are ways to fuse those two um, positively. And so the reason why I'm a little bit optimistic is that I believe that instead of going to Pyongyang first, Moon is right to come to Washington first. And the reason why that's important is because of you know where we left things in Hanoi, uh, and you know the big. I think there are two big gaps, uh, but the critical gap uh, is on substance. Uh, it's a gap with regard to how we define. whether whether we achieved a consensus between the U.S. and North Korea on complete denuclearization. And I don't think we did. I think it's pretty clear that what the North Koreans put on the table uh, was actually a pathway to incomplete denuclearization. Uh, But I think the U.S. and South Korea uh, agree on the necessity of complete denuclearization. And so I think there's value in Moon coming here first, hearing from Trump our commitment to complete denuclearization, and then possibly opening a discussion with the North Koreans about what they need to do. And I would actually argue that in the end, it's the same thing with regards to any kind of sanctions relief, that uh, he can come here, he can hear from Trump what we've all read from Pompeo and others, very clear, no sanctions relief until after we are on a pathway to denuclearization. And um, he can take that message And that's important because what North Korea was really after, I think, in Hanoi was sanctions removal, uh, whereas I think the only prospective thing that we can imagine would be on offer might be some kind of sanctions exemptions. And so I'm hoping that Moon can take those two messages, um, interact with the North Koreans, uh, and maybe um, come up with something better. And I I know I'm running out of time, but just a couple of other issues. Uh, One is uh, there's another proposition that I think is going to be tested by the moon-Trump conversation, uh, and that is a proposition related to the nature of the gap between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, And frankly, I think the big difficulty that we're having uh, in the interactions with North Korea is actually related to the fact that so far the U.S. and North Korea uh, are uh, facing what could turn out to be an unbridgeable gap on denuclearization. But there are also these process-related issues. Uh, And I think the biggest process-related issue that uh, Moon may think he can try to address is what I like to call the vertical disconnect on both the US side and on the North Korean side. And what that means is, how does the leader in the United States, how does the leader in North Korea interact with the bureaucracy? So he's advocating this leader-led process, which, frankly, I disagree with. I think that we need a working-level process in order to support a leader-led process. But he's advocating a leader-led process, which I think he's pursuing on the presumption uh, that if we just get the process right, we can solve uh, the gaps between the U.S. and North Korea. But I actually think that what we may discover is that the U.S. and North Korea have an unbridgeable gap so far on this question of denuclearization. Um, And so um, it may be that this process helps to expose that. And I'll just throw out one other thing that I think is um, um, uh, an opportunity in terms of trying to revive some interaction between the U.S. and North Korea uh, that I think may prove to be important, and then I'll stop. Uh, And that is, uh, you know, so far we've seen North Korea, frankly, I think trying to grapple with the fact that a no-deal summit in Hanoi uh, revealed Kim Jong-un's weakness. I actually think that's the biggest challenge that Kim Jong-un faces right now, is that his weakness has been uh, exposed. And so far what we've seen, I think, post-Hanoi, is the typical efforts by North Korea to try to cover over the weakness. One, signaling that they can possibly do something edging back toward the kind of uh, testing mode of 2017, but not wanting to risk taking a step too far uh, to exploring some diplomatic alternatives, reaching out maybe to Russia. We'll see what happens. Um, But um, what the potential interaction, I think, uh, that can be generated from the Moon-Trump discussion and the likely outreach by South Korea to Pyongyang following that is a, a way that Kim can actually end up saving face a little bit. Because if Moon is asking him to do something, then it doesn't, then, then, then the weakness that Kim faces is not quite so stark or visible. Um, and so I think that um, the North Koreans were going to be stuck in this negative cycle uh, of trying to grapple with weakness. <laughs> Uh, without some additional um, stimulus that can help them change that narrative. And so I think that actually uh, this process, I think that Moon may be you know aiming at, can help to do that. There's a whole bunch of other issues, I think, uh, in terms of specifics that I'm sure we're going to drill down on uh, with regards to uh, you know, how many bites should uh, be uh, involved in uh, eating the denuclearization apple, those kinds of issues. But I, I want to stop there and turn uh, over to the rest of the
0: panel. Yeah, th- thanks, Scott. Yeah, when you talk about the vertil- vertical disconnect, what I've <coughs> referred to as the three divergences between the U.S. and North Korea, the U.S. and South Korea, and President Trump and the Trump administration. Um, but I hadn't thought really of the Kim- Bureaucracy disconnect—that's another good one. John,
4: thank you, um, and Bruce, thanks for bringing us together for this conversation. Um, can I can I just say, just right off the bat, that I hope this is a good meeting, and I think it'll be a good meeting. I think both sides will try to um, make sure that there's um, there's um, more alignment than not. Um, and I would hope that, um, President Trump says that the alliance is great and he's, and the U.S. is committed to the region because I can't remember the last time the president has said that. Um, it used to be part of the usual talking points in terms of when, when leaders from, e- from the East Asia region would come, come by. Um, there was, one of the first lines was always, um, South Korea or Japan um, is a is a great ally and partner in the region, and we and the U.S. is really um, proud to have these shared values with with our partners in the region. Um, and so you get my point. Um, so uh, I think that that would set the, the a right tone for whatever joint statement comes out. Um, and I also hope that the president doesn't bring up more comments about how the alliance is too expensive. Um, I, you know, it's not helpful. Um, that those kinds of things can, can be said in private, but at least publicly, I hope that um, that we sh- that um, the Trump and Moon um, show strength together um, rather than divergences. Um, I think um, you know Scott gave me a really great um, transition when he says that North Korea is grappling with the weakness, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, and um, uh, instead of scrambling to give North Korea a basket of additional goodies or buckets of goodies, I think this is, I think this is an okay time to regroup and, and, and talk to our partners in Asia as well as in Europe, um, to make sure that, um, that everybody's on the same page. So I think it's, I think we're okay. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm in the, uh, you know I'm not completely pessimistic um, on on what's happening right now, um, but I do think that what uh, what the Hanoi summit um, and the failure to have an agreement shows is not to you know never setting aside the 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 Trump administration um, issues uh, and policy coordination. I think that Kim also miscalculated and that this does expose um, as Scott mentions mentioned some of um, the clumsiness in North Korea's decision making or kim's thinking about how um how he is approaching the the us issue um and you know i think f- for for what it's worth um kim basically told us what our leverage is and that's sanctions he wasn't really um as interested he was willing to forego security guarantees in the liaison office or uh, potentially uh, a peace declaration because sanctions what sanctions were what North Korea was laser focused on and you, when you know and and that I think suggests that. Um, that's what the what the regime is focused on. Um, and it's also the you know, we see some reports and anecdotal information trickling out of North Korea about how sanctions are biting, where factories are and mines are shuttered or suspending operations. Workers are told to go, um, and, uh, and, you know, make their own way, um, or, uh, overseas laborers being pressed to supply m- more, uh, money for the regime, uh, for the regime's priority projects within the country. So I think, um, sanctions are there and they need time to work this is a good time as also for i think the us i think what the uh trump administration officials are doing is to um is to make sure that everybody's on the same page on north korea and there's nothing wrong with uh you know consulting with the with chinese leaders um uh, russian leaders um as well as um south korean and japanese uh officials on the next ways forward so um i think this um There there are certain things that North Korea can do, and I think we can use this time to prepare um, so that there are no surprises. Um, Right after the Hanoi summit um there were there was a lot of speculation about north korea doing a potential space launch um and i think this is a time to um brainstorm about the range of op- range of actions that north korea could take so that we have a uh we have a set of actions and measures already in place before even those things happen and we can respond quickly to north korea um it also shows north korea that it can't Um, separate or, or create, um, cleavages within and between alliances, um, and our, with our partners and, and to know that the sanctions regime continues, um, to, um, be in place. Um, and so I'll stop there. And I think, um, I think we're, I think we're in a good position. I think we're okay. It's not terrible. Um, but I think, um, the process is ongoing and what I, with the Hanoi, um, summit, uh, really highlighted for me was that yes, it was fine, it was okay um, to try the leader to leader level, but where are we now? We're back at the working level, so we're you know there's a reason why we have working level conversations first before we have the leader to leader. And so I I have faith in the 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 working level officials to um, to um, to be cooperating with each other
0: um, on the best on the best ways forward. I think that's a good point on the. You know, the top-down so far has not been any more successful than the bottom-up. Uh, and I think to get the kind of comprehensive agreement that I think we would like to have, you have to have it hammered out at the working level to get into the I mean, you know, very detailed. Um, but North Korea usually doesn't want to meet with Steve Beacon. they just want to meet with the president, who they see is more likely to offer concessions. So they take care not to criticize him or to you know, praise him for having gotten the ball as far down the field as it has been. Um, But then they criticize Bolton or Pompeo or the U.S., you know, electoral process for why things are are not as far along after Singapore as as they would have wanted. Um, Also, I think it was very important that for all the talk, not only by Pyongyang and Seoul, but by sort of engagement advocates before Hanoi about North Korea wants you know, to improve relations and reduce tensions, as was captured in the Singapore summit statement. Um, so therefore, we need to do the peace declaration, we need to do liaison offices, we need to do all these other things that North Korea wants. Well, they never raised those during the, the Hanoi summit. It was really uh, you know, only focused on sanctions relief. So to me, it seems that it showed that those other issues were much more peripheral rather than central as as others you know had suggested anyway olivia
1: yeah, great so as bruce alluded to human rights issues were seemingly absent from the conversations in both Singapore and Hanoi, but the few times that they were raised kind of were like a blip on the radar, Um, and I wanted to highlight those really quick. First, um, Secretary Pompeo said after Singapore that they did raise concerns regarding religious persecution um, during the Singapore summit, and North Korea itself in Hanoi blamed sanctions for so-called worsening humanitarian conditions inside the country after the Hanoi summit. Uh, We'll talk about that more later. Human rights issues were also raised in the lead-up to the summit in Singapore when uh, President Trump requested the release of the three Americans. And while I mention this as a blip on the radar, I think that all of these instances actually might point towards some potential leverage points that we can use in the future as we talk with North Korea. So the first point that I wanted to make is that diplomats in both Washington and in Seoul repeatedly argue that we can't raise the discussion of human rights issues with North Korea because it's going to derail negotiations. But I don't believe that's actually true, and there are a couple of reasons why I think this is the case. Um, One, the U.S. has raised human rights considerations, uh, as I said before, when it talked about the three Americans. Obviously, this was three Americans who were being abused by the North Korean regime being held there um, extrajudicially. Um, But North Korea not only didn't stop the ongoing negotiations, it continued with great rigor in those negotiations. And I think that this should embolden U.S. negotiators to raise some of the other pressing human rights issues, including, for example, the political prison camp issue. I think secondly, it also may be necessary to address the human rights challenges in order to address the nuclear threat at all. And there are sort of three reasons why I think this is the case. First, North Korea uses free labor in the political prison camps as free labor for the regime itself. In some cases, this is in fact directly involved in the development of their missile and nuclear program. Second, North Korea allegedly tests both chemical and biological weapons on children, on the mentally challenged, as well as political prisoners inside of the camps. And then third, North Korea uses the millions, possibly even billions, that it's previously generated from forced labor abroad of North Koreans in order to fund its nuclear and missile program. Again, all ways in which the human rights abuses are directly connected to North Korea's weapons program. I think it's time to see those human rights issues and the security issues as complementary to each other rather as working, rather than as working in opposition to each other. And I would actually press uh, American diplomats as well as diplomats in Seoul to actually list out examples when they raised concerns over human rights and it completely derailed negotiations. I've heard people say this, but I've never actually been given proof for that. I'd be really interested to hear uh, what those cases are. The second point I wanted to move on to is that there's power in sending a really clear message that the U.S. and South Korea stand in opposition to North Korea as one of the single worst abusers of human rights in the world. Um, I think it's a shame that, you know, it it was really wonderful early on in the Trump administration that President Trump strongly highlighted human rights issues, not only in his address that he gave before the National Assembly in Seoul, but also in the State of the Union address when he highlighted Ji Sung Ho, a North Korean refugee, and also when he chose to meet with North Korean refugees. But all of that strong rhetoric condemning North Korea's human rights abuses went straight out the window as soon as there was opportunities for diplomatic engagement both in Singapore and Hanoi. And in Singapore, he made inexplicable statements about Kim Jong-un loving his people, respecting his people. And then, of course, um, in in, uh, in Hanoi, he even made excuses for the Kim regime about not knowing about what happened to Otto Warmbier, which is uh, pretty incomprehensible. But it's not only the U.S. who is failing to raise the human rights issues. Seoul has, frankly, been really bad from the start. Um, Moon Jae-in, for example, has allegedly been silencing the activism of North Korean refugees, as well as several NGO groups. And then even beyond this is taking practical – Policy steps to undo previous progress on North Korean human rights. For example, Moon Jae in cut the funding appropriated for the North Korean Human Rights Foundation by close to 93%. This was a foundation that was supposed to be set up uh, as a result of the North Korean Human Rights Act that was passed by South Korea. It was landmark legislation, the first time that the National Assembly had ever passed anything related to North Korean human rights. And now the main deliverable from that is not actually coming into fruition. Both countries' unwillingness to take a stand on one of the world's worst human rights crises is frankly in neither country's interest. And arguably the very existence of North Korea's nuclear program and the continued uh, human rights abuses are really a symptom of broader problems in Pyongyang that are in need of addressing. And that's a poor system of governance that jeopardizes the rights of the people both within its border but also beyond. The third and final point that I wanted to take a look at is sort of the next steps for holding North Korea accountable and the opportunities that are perhaps presented through this upcoming uh, Trump Moon Summit. First, as uh, several of my co-panelists have noted, it was clear from Hanoi that North Korea sought sanctions relief. And one of the primary excuses that it gave for that was that the sanctions, North Korea said, were affecting the humanitarian conditions there. And we know that that claim that the sanctions are the primary reason why there's a humanitarian crisis or seriously, serious humanitarian issues inside of North Korea are not because of the sanctions. They're because North Korea, the Kim regime, mismanages its resources, and we know this because North Korea's request, or the recently approved World Food Program request to provide food assistance to North Korea, is only uh, 163 million dollars, and that, or excuse me, 161 million dollars, and that's over three years, three years' time, only 161 million dollars. And yet in 2012, North Korea spent $1.3 billion on its missile program alone, $300 million on luxury facilities, um, and $644 million on luxury goods. It's clear that North Korea could feed its people, but is choosing not to do so. Second, I think that If North Korea, however, is going to make the claim that the sanctions are causing humanitarian issues, Seoul and Washington should just call North Korea on its bluff. And they should do this by requesting access to North Korea's political prison camps for the World Food Program, the UN, or the International Committee on the Red Cross, This would be a way for Washington and Seoul to partner in providing assistance. It might even meet some of Seoul's demands for inter-Korean economic cooperation, but it would do so in such a way that doesn't violate sanctions in any way, shape, or form because sanctions make a humanitarian exemption, and providing assistance to individuals inside those political prison camps means that they would be serving the most vulnerable of populations. Next, um, I wanted to focus on the fact that North Korea has stated that it wants sanctions relief, but frankly, it needs to understand what the full spectrum of sanctions are. Um, when U.S. negotiators say, North Korea, we can lift all sanctions if you denuclearize that's not actually 100% true the reality is is that the un multilateral sanctions have a very high standard complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of north korea's nuclear program and that's echoed in us unilateral sanctions but us unilateral sanctions also reflect other priorities in us government policy which include human rights they also include north korea's designation as a primary money laundering concern it also includes north korea's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism all of which cannot be released, uh, cannot be removed, unless North Korea makes progress on the human rights front. And in particular, one of the requirements of the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, which ties both human rights and security issues together, is that they actually effectively close the political prison camps. So I think it's important to highlight that in diplomacy with North Korea. Um, Finally, the Trump and Moon summit shouldn't just be about setting – The future summit dates. I think a lot of people are speculating as to whether or not this will be an opportunity for them to say, we're we're heading toward a third summit. But really, it should be about shoring up the alliance, as Jung pointed out. And I think that the U.S.-South Korea alliance has always represented a means by which the U.S. and South Korea can not only promote security in the region, but also promote human rights for all. And so I think that it would be a really strong message for both Seoul and Washington to clearly communicate that they care about North Korea. So my final thought is just the U.S. and South Korea have an incredible opportunity here in the next day or so to be a voice for the voiceless North Korean people who are not represented at the diplomatic table at any point in time. The question is whether or not they will use their voice as well.
0: Thanks uh, to all all the panelists. Uh, We'll throw it open to questions in a a little bit, but I want to drill down on some things. Um, First of all is – sort of how close do you think we were to a small deal in Hanoi? I mean it's not just an academic question I mean, all the signals seemed to be we were we were going that way uh, sort of I think Steve Began seemed to be hinting at least ahead of the summit of you know sort of this incremental uh, process um, perhaps the the four or five point of the small deal uh, and now, The the administration seems to be depicting it as oh we were we were never going to do a small deal it's always been this sort of all for you know you get nothing until we get all the denuclearization so like I said it's not just an academic question because if we were closer than it might be depicted now then perhaps in a subsequent summit if North Korea comes a little bit further would we agree to a small deal or is the atmosphere such now that no, it's we really need to get kind of everything from North Korea before we agree to provide any benefits.
4: I don't, I don't even, I don't know that. Um, I don't think either side came with a plan B. Um, that they they came with plan A, and it was, it, it, and it's not, it wasn't just the the President Trump who came with plan A, and that's it. But I think Kim Jong Un also came with plan A and and nothing else. Um, And I think there was genuine surprise um, um, from Kim that he wasn't able to um, use his personal relationship with President Trump to come out with the big deal that he wanted. Um, And so so I'm not, um, so I don't think that there was a small deal for either side, um, that either side envisioned a smaller deal. So, um, and, and... Judging, from, you know, looking at this from the outside, some of the discussions and some of the um, North Korea's actions in the lead up to Hanoi, I I didn't see any indications that North Korea was serious about um, having a serious, a serious conversation about denuclearization in the first place. Um, and so I think the I think that some of the signposts were there that it was not that we were we weren't going to have a big um, a big uh, a small deal. Um, I think. A lot of our I lo- a lot of the commentary has been colored by so much speculation that people started to think that people began to expect that there would be some in- inter Korean engagement economic engagement projects that would be okayed um, and that there was going to be a peace declaration and that there was going you know a- and liaison offices but um, it sounds like there were, all those things were there on the table um, but that at the end of the day North Korea was just not interested.
3: Uh, I I want to throw in something on that. I mean, um, I I have mixed feelings about that uh, because I actually think that um, at the working level, um, the original, I think, uh, approach was kind of a four-lane approach. Uh, But you had to get to agreement uh, in all four lanes in order for things to move forward. And so, you know, on the one hand, we know that there must. There was a four-lane type of approach that could have led to something, but it could only lead to something if you can settle on the fundamental uh, agreement about where you're going. Complete denuclearization. And so I kind of agree, but I, but I also feel that there, you know, was evidence of um, a, a path forward. Uh, that uh, you know, frankly, if you get the agreement on where you're going. Um, there's going to be different opinions on the level of urgency needed uh, in terms of how big a bite you have to take. Uh, But, you know, without the agreement, you really can't do anything. And I think that's where we ended up. And so I actually think that if it's possible to come to an understanding that we're headed toward complete denuclearization and that we're not going to call incomplete denuclearization complete denuclearization – uh, you know, then you can imagine uh, several bites of the apple uh, in order to get to where you need to go. But you know, without that fundamental agreement, um, you're not going to get anywhere.
1: My understanding is that North Korea had made the request for that incomplete denuclearization in exchange for sanctions relief prior to the summit taking place, and the assumption was that North Korean negotiators would go back to Pyongyang, and actually work out some alternative. And then you come to Hanoi, and hypothetically, there would be a different offer that North Korea would make. So it's clear that there were just lines getting crossed between Pyongyang and US negotiators, it seems like, all along.
0: I would think that poor North Korean advisor to Kim Jong-un, who said that, oh, sure, boss, he'll sign it. Uh, That must have been a really long (laughs) 60-hour train ride back to Pyongyang. (laughs)
4: But I think that's the problem with the with the system that Kim has created and strengthened. Is that if you make people afraid to tell you the truth, then you're certainly going to have um, communication issues um, and policy dysfunction. Um, and so I think this is where, uh, as as Scott mentioned earlier, that it lays bare the we- some of the weaknesses of the system that Kim has created.
3: Yeah, if you've got to rely on fake
0: news for your intelligence, you've got problems. <laughs> 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 um, when uh Scott, you talk about needing agreement on the endpoint um you know there's a i think a, one of the many fundamental debates that korea watchers have um is sort of you know incremental versus the the final end state and there's a lot of variations on that um but one is you know the one one theory is that there's so much distrust between the U.S. and North Korea that we have to do this a step at a time. So uh, do, you know, like a one-page or a two-page document, uh, and as previous U.S. officials would say, we need to coax the turtle's head out of the shell. Um, You can't have a thousand-page arms control agreement like we had with the Soviets. Um, Do kind of a baby-step agreement, and then if you both feel comfortable with that, you do another one and another one and another one. Or another theory is like doing it with this, like arms control with the Soviets, where you have to agree on, well, what denuclearization is. You have to agree on what the Korean Peninsula is, and it doesn't include Guam. Um, you have to define what a missile is, what a production facility is, kind of all that legalistic things. And that you have to at least know where you're going, because otherwise you won't get there. Um, and that you can implement the steps incrementally, you can't just snap your finger and have everything done all at once, but you need the endpoint. So, you know, how, how does the panel come down on the do it have the agreement incrementally in order to lead to hopefully a good endpoint, or whether there's a requirement of you need it all on paper first, and then you can implement it incrementally?
3: I'm in the camp that believes that you at the very minimum, have to identify the destination. Uh, you know, uh, at a very minimum. And actually, you know, the other problem with the process that, I mean, in a way is the most telling is that we finally got to something that looked like a working-level negotiation, but it sounds like in Pyongyang uh, the North Koreans didn't even deploy the resources at the working level to be serious, uh, you know, they're not. I, I'm not sure. It's we don't know if they have the capacity to do a European-style arms or a, a U.S.-Soviet-style arms control agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that remains to be seen. But they obviously haven't made the political decision to de- deploy the resources necessary uh, in order to achieve that objective uh, up to now. And so, in a way, that was the the biggest early signal that we're still not. On the right track, uh, that I saw in the run-up to uh, Hanoi, um,
4: and so I think this is where the human rights conversation and, uh, comes into play here. Because how do you do it, how do you do arms control with the country that represses its people? Um, and so, and also, how do you how do you plan for a brighter future for North Korean people and just let the existing system um, persist? Um, so you know, I you know I, I I don't know if there's a case where you know, in the Soviet example, they wanted some sort of stability, right um with the United States. um, but I think in the North Korea example, an arms control measure has to take take on the risk that. Uh, with and and understand that um, we have a key assumption that North Korea does not want peace and that it, it seeks um instability because that's the way they maintain their relevance um, and they extract political and economic concessions um so it's not it's not so much stability using nuclear weapons that it that North Korea is seeking but they're probably looking to use nuclear weapons to uh to free, to increase their freedom of action on the things that they want to do so um, on our arms control and a brighter future for North Korea, for the North Korean people, I think you would have to uh, address the fundamental question of the regime's um, characteristics, um, and that's the repression and the uh, and the prison camp system that the North Koreans have.
0: Let me raise another issue, and then we'll throw it open to the floor. Um, we've talked about the importance of sanctions and how it seemed to be so central to North Korea's focus in the Hanoi summit, uh, and that it gives us I think the leverage uh, which brought North Korea back to the table and which hopefully will bring it back to the table in a more meaningful way. Um, and then after Hanoi, both sides were careful not to criticize the other too much, not to burn diplomatic bridges, uh, but then kind of incrementally try to increase pressure on the others. North Korea had its you know strong rhetoric, but still fairly low. sort of we may rethink participating in these negotiations. Uh, And then they, you know, did some activity at the SOHE missile launch or rocket launch facility, knowing that we would see it. You know, put a new paint job on a couple buildings, drive a couple vehicles around the tarmac, uh, but still a low-level, sort of a a low-caliber shot across the bow. On the U.S. side, it was, you know, we may do more sanctions. And then the U.S. Treasury did, and they had two, uh, you know, kind of another timid incrementalism of sanctions uh, enforcement. They identified two Chinese shipping companies. But the accompanying uh, announcement was 19 pages. It had five annexes with a long, long list of potential targets. And I think the signal there was, we're only doing two today, but look at the long list of other targets we could do. And that, I think, was consistent with some of the other small tranches of sanctions after Singapore, where it might be three Russian shipping companies, three human rights or censorship entities. But the signal that was intended to go was that the other entities in that sector could be affected if we chose to do it. But then 24 hours after Treasury did that, the president walked him back, uh, and there's a lot of confusion as to what he meant. And there were, I think, three different stories uh, over time. It was either, uh, you know, he was rescinding the two that had been done, or no, he was preventing a larger tranche uh, of uh, large-scale sanctions that were going to be done. And then the third story was sort of no. It was that the second one was a cover story to uh, cover up uh, the confusion of the first or second story. So is, is the U.S. sanctions policy in disarray where we have the president undoing what the Treasury Department is trying to do? Uh, The reason given by the White House spokesperson was because he likes Kim Jong-un. Back in June, right before the Singapore summit, he announced there are 300 North Korean entities he's not sanctioning because we're talking so nicely to the North, and there's other lists of entities we're not sanctioning. So if sanctions are important, are we sending conflicting signals, uh, or was that just a we will maintain sanctions – but not necessarily ramp them up big scale as long as we seem to be in talks.
3: I think there are conflicting signals there, uh, but they reflect the differing interests of some of the various constituencies, right? So you have uh, the Treasury, and actually what I think is notable about way they've, the way they are pursuing uh, sanctions is that it's really about – Uh, at least with regard to those two sanctions, signaling signals uh, that we're serious about enforcement. Because managing this sanctions regime, it turns out, is a very dynamic process because the North Koreans are always looking for ways of achieving sanctions evasion. Uh, And so you have to keep on uh, trying to plug the holes. Um, But the president, I think that he – you know, looked at it more as a tool by which to send his own messages about the possibility of maintaining symmetry with Kim Jong-un. And frankly, you know, what they made a backstory to cover over the, uh, uh, you know, explanation for the tweet and all that. And so, I mean, you know, I I think that his interests are uh, clear, uh, but they're in conflict with the objective of the Treasury. And then you've got the Hill, which is basically uh, building on Junk's point, we know where, where the weakness is, let's exploit it uh, by doing expansive, you know, expanded sanctions, secondary boycotts. And so you've got all three of those differing positions on uh, sanctions uh, projecting disarray, but actually also, I think, uh, reflecting the respective interests of the constituencies in the discussion.
1: I think the most important headline, if you will, coming out of the Hanoi summit was that North Korea cares desperately about getting sanctions relief. So regardless of whether or not the current policy is in disarray, it's time to turn it around and really return back to that maximum pressure policy. That's what brought North Korea to the negotiating table in the first place. Why not make broader use of some of the sanctions authorities that extend beyond beyond some of the missile and nuclear program-related ones? make greater use of the executive authorities that the president has um, one three seven executive order one three seven two two and one three six eight seven allows them to target individuals for human rights abuses using the countering America's adversaries through sanctions enables us to actually stop imports from entities that are using North Korean forced laborers. mean, there are a lot of ways that we can put the pressure up on North Korea not only on the nuclear and missile front, but also on the human rights front. And I think we should be doing that more aggressively out, out from after Hanoi.
0: And, and we can go in, into more depth on the congressional role, which is a whole other sector. But I'll, I'll throw it open now to uh, the floor for questions. Uh, if you could identify yourself and any organization you're affiliated with, and if you could keep the questions short to give a, the uh, panelists time to answer them. Sir. Sure.
5: Yeah, thanks. Mike Billington with Executive Intelligence Review. Um, I'm wondering what all of you think. Um, how the Korea issue is going to affect the negotiations between the US and China, and if uh, there is a summit, if there's a successful outcome, and, and, uh, and Trump meets with Xi Jinping, how that, how Korea will play on that discussion, and how that discussion will play on Korea. And I'd ask the same question about Russia, with the collusion hoax pretty much knocked out. Uh, Do you see a potential for Trump and Putin getting together to discuss how to approach uh, Korea, which there were indications were going on in the past? Good
0: good question.
3: Sounds like it's more likely that uh, uh, Kim and Putin are going to get together to talk about this rather than Trump and Putin, is what I would say on that. Uh, And then, I don't know, um, on the relationship between the U.S.-China trade negotiations and the North Korea issue... You know, it's kind of a complicated story under the Trump administration because you'll remember back in the run-up to uh, Xi, Trump, and Mar-a-Lago, uh, it seemed like Trump was uh, linking uh, Chinese performance on application of sanctions on North Korea to uh, the U.S.-China economic relationship. Uh, and I actually think that uh, that worked to the extent that uh, Xi performed. Uh, In 2017, on putting pressure on North Korea. But then, you know, if there was a tacit deal not to pursue a trade war with China, it looks like Trump broke the deal uh, in early 2018 um, by pursuing the tariffs. Uh, And so, you know, I think that bureaucratically these issues are not linked whatsoever, they can only become linked uh, at the Trump Xi level. But I think that the lesson, if I were Xi Jinping, that I would take from this is avoid linkage uh, between uh, North Korea and trade. Keep them separate, regardless of what sort of uh, approach Trump might take uh, on that in the context of uh, a Mar-a-Lago 2 or wherever they're going to do that.
4: I I think here we have to exploit the convergences uh, in in policies of the three capitals um, in Moscow, Beijing, and um, Washington that – um, China and 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 Russia, um, what, regardless of what the what some of the other um, conflicts that we have um, with those countries, that um, they they both want denuclearization of North Korea. Um and you know the their time frame is different and their ma me- and their methods are different, but um the 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 end goal is similar enough that we can continue to co uh cooperate with um Beijing and Moscow on this issue. So I think in you know, as we wait, you know, look for um North Korea's intentions on, on um resuming dialogue that um it's important to that that the at the working levels that that, that Washington officials are, are talking to um, their counterparts um, in the region to make sure that one we know what to do if Kim visits Russia, um, two we know what to do if they do a, a space launch, um, three we know what to do about cyber attacks which are ongoing. Um, and so you know they're they're you know, having looked at North Korea for you know decades, right? So um, you know collectively speaking, from from you know just from the people on the stage that we kind of know what North Korea might do to mitigate sanctions. Um and so that's so you know and we don't have to wait for them to do those things before we start talking about various responses um to show unity to show that we're serious and to show that um you know they're not going to be successful in dividing and conquering.
0: Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I would reiterate Scott's point about not linking the China trade issue and the North Korea issue, but I would also note that I find a lot of times in conversations about North Korea, China is pointed to almost as this silver bullet, like, oh, if only we could get China to enforce the sanctions, or if only we could get China on board with certain things. And I'm not sure that it's the silver bullet that it's really made out to be. I think a lot of times there is an overemphasis and an overfocus on the role that China can play. But I think that the U.S. has a lot of diplomatic power and a lot of soft power with other countries in the region in large part because of its own alliance relationships, not only with South Korea, but certainly with. Japan and otherwise, and those should be the ones that are really strongly emphasized when we look at negotiating with North Korea, even though I think China has an important role to play, certainly, and it was helpful when China was, to some extent, instituting and ensuring that North Korea wasn't cheating so much on its sanctions.
0: Yeah, I I think the the U.S.-China trade issue is is less linked to North Korea than I think many perceive it to be. I I think the administration is sort of pursuing different lanes in the road that are – pretty separate. I think on on the trade issue, that's obviously of of great importance to the administration. Uh, And it's a response to not only the trade imbalance or the trade deficit, um, but sort of the much more widespread view in Washington now than years ago of the need to confront China over its unfair trading practices. Uh, In the past, the U.S. business community was one of the biggest supporters of uh, engaging with China, sort of downplaying the political or the diplomatic issues uh, and focusing on the economic issues. But as uh, we've had IPR violations and unfair trading practices, now U.S. business is much more critical and uh, pushing for greater action by the U.S. government on, on China. Um, and then we can debate what tools we can use. The Heritage Foundation has been quite critical – of the Trump administration's reliance on tariffs, which we see as taxes on the American people. We think there are other ways of, of going about it. But I, I don't think there really is a, a sense in the administration of, we'll press China on trade issues in order to get them to be more supportive on North Korea and then vice versa. So I think it's not as linked as as people might think it is. Sir, oh, why don't we go...
6: My name is um, Don Kirk. I'm a journalist. I've spent, you know, some time in South Korea. Uh, I get the impression that uh, that uh, the U.S. and the uh, government of the ROK government are not at all on the same page. I got the feeling from a couple of remarks that I heard that some of you think that they are pretty close, but I think they're very divergent, uh, and I think that it could be even a deepening divergence. This is my recent impression from, you know, uh, having talked to quite a few people there. So I wonder uh, how uh, uh, Trump can uh, get on the same page with uh, President Moon and how they can rationalize and overcome and bridge this growing chasm in views about how to deal with North Korea. If you could explore that a little further, I would be interested in going beyond what you said about how, oh, they they really are okay with each other and all that, because I don't think they are. Thank you very much.
1: I can take a stab at it. Um, So I'll use the example. When President Moon visited the U.S. for the first time, um, he made some really good statements while he was here. And it really made it sound like he was on the same page as the U.S. in a lot of regards. He actually – at that point, maximum pressure was sort of the name of the game. And so he was pretty – he emphasized that a lot in his remarks, whether that was the public remarks with the president or um, in remarks that he gave at CSIS or otherwise. And I had the opportunity to travel to South Korea a week afterwards and meet with a lot of different folks who were in various government agencies there, and I was surprised to hear the complete opposite being the case, that the focus really was on diplomacy and detente to some extent, and much less of an emphasis on the sanctions themselves or helping the U.S. to institute them. I think that there are some questions. I think Scott sort of got at this in his uh, remarks when he said, you know, South Korea is really leading with a peace-focused process and will institute sanctions to the extent that they see that as in their interest and also out of respect for the alliance itself, whereas the U.S. will definitely emphasize more of a maximum pressure strategy with peace and any other offsets being there. That being said, I think both the U.S. and South Korea, regardless of the president's rhetorical commitment to it or not, recognize that the alliance itself is a longstanding and important part of U.S. strategy in Asia that goes even beyond deterring conflict on the Korean Peninsula. And I, I have hope that that will endure regardless of statements that may come or go.
3: Yeah, I mean, so here's the reason why I think that they're basically have to be uh, mostly on the same page with each other. A, it's alliance, and so we have to come to a joint position. Uh, and I think that also that alliance is very highly institutionalized. We've just had uh, defense minister meetings and foreign minister meetings uh, in addition to uh, consultations you know, on this uh, summit process. Uh, but maybe most important, the South Korean president, regardless of his personal inclinations, and I don't know what they are, but he is under a set of political constraints that we have to recognize. One, South Korea needs the alliance for its defense, it's been very clear. Secondly, um, public opinion in South Korea is more pro alliance than it is pro North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, And thirdly, uh, there's the domestic constraint generated by South Korean politics. And, you know, we're going to be coming up to a National Assembly election next year. And uh, if uh, I think that if President Moon – if if a rift appears, a deep rift between uh, the U.S. and South Korea, Moon is the one who has the most to pay. And then my last point on this is uh, as evidence that actually the U.S. and South Korea may be uh, pretty – closer to each other than um, than further away, is you've got North Korean propaganda, propaganda outlets criticizing Moon for being too close to the United States. Uh, so they must be, you know, there must be a reason uh, why they're putting that out. I think there are probably a variety of reasons why they're putting that out, but one of them uh, may actually be that South Korea is cooperating with the United States more than North Korea would like.
4: Um, I, I, I think um... – Scott's absolutely right. Um and and I think that especially on the institutionalization, um I think I mean the relationship is deep um and it's at multiple levels. And I think when I look at um what happened after Hanoi, um you know President Trump called um President Moon from the plane, um there was uh an immediate meeting of um, the South Korean and the Japanese nuclear envoys with Steve Began, our special representative, um, they were also in Hanoi, making sure that everything was coordinated. Um, and, I, and you know, the, the working levels um, are still ongoing. So I think it's a, I think you know, we have professionals in the government who are used to doing this, and this is just part of their muscle memory of of, of doing this, um, and and working with our with our allies in the region. So I think. Um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to the alliance, I think there are, as as Scott mentions, there are lots of constraints, institutional and, and political and otherwise, um, that um, that point to more uh, flexibility and resilience. I hope than um, than what might uh, seem as, fi- as
0: as apparent fissures. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here too because it's a it's an important point. Um, a lot of it depends on who you talk to in both governments. Uh, how well you've, you have know them, how long you've known them, uh, and how many bottles of soju you've had at the time. Um, and, and some of it is relative, is, is you know, one man's, you know, oh, my God, you know, we've got huge differences, is another person's, eh, look, we're yelling at each other, but we're, you know, we're allies, et cetera. But, um, you know, I just think of some examples is, is late last year, um, I, I talked to folks in the U.S. government and was getting some pretty strong remarks about, the South Korean policies uh, and and sort of a, you know, these are getting – we've sent strong messages and the differences are getting so strong we may not be able to keep this dispute behind closed doors. And then I'd go to Seoul and I'd hear, I don't know what you're talking about. Bruce, we're going along great. Everyone loves each other. There, there's no disagreement whatsoever. It's like, okay. Uh, you know, and then, uh, then it became so obvious that you'd hear, you know, comments by Secretary Pompeo publicly. And then it just sort of this – this divergence became much more public. Um, and then another thing is I, I hosted a, a, a you know, private meetings with a, a delegation of South Koreans late last year. It was current and former officials. Uh, and, and we had meetings with US officials, former US officials, congressional staffers, current members of Congress. Um, and the, the message from all of the Americans was we're very skeptical of North Korea and we think South Korea is going too far too fast. And so when I was t- chatting with one of the, the Koreans that I've known for a while, uh, and he said, yeah, you know, I said, look, I didn't just invite hardliners. You had, you know, Democrat staffers and Democrat members of Congress and then Republicans, you know, all saying the same thing. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we, we got the message. I said, the other message is we're, we're much more frank when we're talking amongst ourselves uh, amongst the Americans about South Korean policy. And that's when his eyebrows went up. It was like, oh, okay, because we thought it had been a really stern message. I said, oh, it's it was much more polite than behind closed doors. So I, I think there are divergences on the the approach. Now, that doesn't mean the relationship's in danger or the alliance is in danger. It may just be there's you know, some free and frank exchange of ideas behind closed doors, and then publicly everything is, is – on the same page and shoulder to shoulder, um, but I, I think there are, you know, just two very different views of approaching North Korea. You know, one puts the cart before the horse; the other wants the horse before the cart. But, um, uh, you know, it's it's you know something that um, we need to try to resolve because we're in this together. The other thing is on some unrelated to North Korea issues, like the Special Measures Agreement negotiations; those were unnecessarily contentious. They're always rough because we're talking about money. But, you know, the U.S. demand for cost plus 50 percent, the negative comments by the president for years about alliances and stationing troops overseas and the cost and sort of implying everything is a transactional relationship as opposed to a uh, military alliance based on common objectives and common values and a history together, um, that's not helpful. Um, and when I was meeting with, you know, members of the National Assembly in Seoul, they were warning, you know, this could sort of cause a resurgence of anti-Americanism if it gets too strong again. So we have to be careful on issues even unrelated to North Korea to make sure that we don't sort of strain the relationship, which then makes coordination on other policies more difficult.
2: Thank you. Jong-un um, Lee uh, of Tonga Daily Newspaper. Um here, just because uh, the moon, President Moon is coming soon, I would like to ask about early harvest and a good enough deal. as you already know, the Korean government recently mentioned early harvest meaning that it is necessary to gain at least a small achievement to keep the talks on the track, uh, not to discourage those who try to pull North Korea to the negotiating table in Washington and Seoul as well. So um, do you think this approach is contrary to the United States' big deal, or this could, be, uh, this could work as an optional card as a breakthrough? And then uh, just one more question. Um, It is said that at Hanoi, President Trump handed Kim, uh, Kim a piece of paper that included the request of the transfer, handover of Pyongyang's nuclear weapons and bomb fuel to the United States. So do you think it is a deal that Kim could accept or too much for him? Because in South Korea, it is said that uh, John Bolton's approach is sometimes too hawkish. So he plays a negative role to make a progress. And I would like to ask what you think about that. Thank you.
0: I might just start with it. I think for an early harvest, you at least have to have the denuclearization sprout above ground. But <laughs> um, <laughs> lest I be pessimistic. Uh, of you want to tackle that? Uh, yeah. So I...
4: That sounds good, um, but you know, when when I look at what President Trump has been saying, I mean, there are lots of inconsistencies and unpredictability in what the president says, um, and a lot of freelancing on his part. But um, from but what what the the one thing that he's been consistent on is no sanctions removal without denuclearization, um, and. And, and two, the administration has been, has been touting the fact that they're not going to be like the, they're not going to be like the failing of previous administrations that lifted sanctions prematurely before North Korea made, uh, uh irreversible progress on, on, on their nuclear weapon, uh, on denuclearization. Um, and so, um, I think, you know, that's, that's President Moon's prerogative to raise that. I think he wants to make, encourage, um, Continue dialogue, um, but I, I would be um, surprised if President Trump um, agreed to a um, a significant change um, in in the way he's looking at the nuclear weapons program. Um, secondly, I think kind of your question about John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, I think relates to the previous question from Don Kirk on uh, on the alliance. Um, the, the blame after Hanoi wasn't on President Trump or the administration writ large. It was on John Bolton. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that, I think that might be a little bit misplaced because I think that the, the Bolton strain of thinking was always there. It just never, it just didn't, um, rise to the surface as often as the other side, uh, as other parts of, um, the conversation. So, um, I, you know, I think Secretary of State Pompeo left some wiggle room, was it today or yesterday, in his um, – in some interview where he said that, you know, he wants to leave some wiggle room on 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 the sanctions. So, um, so, you know, I'll just leave it at that and see if my panelists have other comments.
0: You know, I might just add the, you know, the – well, will North Korea agree to it and, you know, shouldn't we water it down? I mean, first of all, I'd say look at what's required under 11 UN resolutions. It's North Korea not just not test, it's that North Korea abandon its nuclear missile and BCW arsenal, as well as all production capabilities thereof. So that's what they're required to do under the UN resolutions, and nowhere in the resolutions does it say, in return, you get X, Y, and Z. Um, I mean, something else that might seem really hardline would be if we were to say, you know, the North shall not test, manufacture, produce, receive, possess, store, deploy, or use nuclear weapons. Uh, The North shall not possess nuclear reprocessing and uranium enrichment facilities. And the North, in order to verify the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, shall conduct inspection of the objects selected by the other side and agreed upon between the two sides. I mean, that might be seen as as really outrageously hard-line. That's what North Korea agreed to in 1992. It was a North-South agreement. But it's – they've already agreed to that. They, You know, they've agreed to four agreements where they promised never to do what they then did, and then they had four agreements promising to give up what they promised never to do. So, you know, in a way, we're we're asking North Korea just to do what they've already promised to do and what they're required to do, and yet that's depicted as the hard-line position.
3: Let me just add, um, you know, the person who's been most, uh, I think uh, – vocal about the situation you described related to early harvest is really, you know, Victor Cha uh, in response to North Korean in in intransigence, everybody comes to the United States and asks the U.S. to make a concession. But I think that – and so I think that actually uh, if if that is what the South Korean government intends, I don't think that it's going to work at this time because the critical things that uh, are needed – for this process to go forward are actually concessions that the North Koreans are going to have to offer. So I see this conversation between Moon and Trump as uh, a framing device for uh, a South Korean outreach to Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. And it's very important uh, that uh, the South Korean envoy goes to Pyongyang armed uh, with a very recent and authoritative understanding of the U.S. position, and so that's the way I think this is really, you know, more likely to go forward. What we need is, you know, from Pyongyang, is an understanding that we're going to achieve uh, a U.S. definition of complete denuclearization, i.e., not incomplete, uh, and also that the the, the pathway is going to be not a sanctions um, removal pathway. Maybe a sanctions exemption pathway, maybe. We'll have to see what that looks like, but not a sanctions removal pathway.
4: You know that I think that that's right, um, but you know all of the you know if Moon does plan to send a, an envoy to Pyongyang, that's dependent on what Pyongyang wants and says. You know he's not going to go just uninvited to North Korea to talk about these things. Uh, and from from what I'm seeing uh, from North Korea's posture, it sounds like they don't want to talk to anybody right now, um, and that um, and that uh, the the a South Korean envoy might not get might not even get to go to even talk about these things. But I think Scott's right on that, you know, this is an important meeting to figure out how to uh, get North Korea to um, change its mind.
0: And the other big event tomorrow, which we may hear of tonight, our time, is what Kim's speech to the Supreme People's Assembly is, whether he signals a, hey, we want to keep talking or a, you know, quiver and obey type of message. We're not sure. So I think a lot of us are going to be hitting refresh on the search tonight. <laughs>
4: and there are other div- there are other ways that North Korea can. I mean, um, North Korea not talking, I think, will make every a lot of people really nervous, um, and it'll fuel their um, uh, their calls for North Korea to or for us to give saying You know, to give concessions, right? Um, and I think that was probably one of the one of the aims of um, you know re or remantling what's the word for uh on the on the engine's test site at Sohei that you know having showing some movement there um uh you know and inspiring lots of um speculation about a space launch that you know never happened um and you know and and i suspect that north korea is going to try to raise tension by maybe showing some icbms at the military parade or Doing, you know, having some trucks come by at the engine test site just to raise, um, to raise the anxiety in their international community in China and in South Korea to go to the U.S. to say, hey, you got to do something before something happens. Um, but I don't think we necessarily have to do that. Um, and I, and, you know, I think North Korea still wants to talk to Trump, but, um, I think we have to avoid, um, getting ahead of ourselves and defeating our own policies by moving too quickly to head off whatever North Korea might do.
0: Sir.
5: Ken Meyer,
3: corridor retiree. Uh, given that mutual defense pacts are not written in stone, could South Korea uh, sign a peace agreement with North Korea uh, independent of us?
0: There's a... Uh, I mean the difference between a peace declaration and a peace treaty, Um, and I think it was even someone in the Moon administration was saying that, like the Panmunjom or the the Pyongyang summit statement was a virtual peace declaration between the Koreas. I I can't remember, but um, I mean a peace declaration, which is what Seoul is pushing the U.S. to agree to now, um, you know, is more of a political or diplomatic or symbolic gesture than something that would have a tangible legal impact. So a peace treaty, I would think, would have to be signed by the two Koreas, China, and the United States, whether it's a four-party or a two-plus-two, uh, and then ratified by the UN uh, Security Council. That would likely remove the the basis or the legal basis for United Nations command uh, on the peninsula. It would have no effect on Combined Forces Command or U.S. Forces Korea, which are the result of the Mutual Defense Treaty. Um, but, you know, my problem with the peace declaration is, is when people in the South Korean government kind of advocate for it, it's a, eh, it's not that bad, why not do it? It's symbolic, it's, it's political, it has no impact, why not do it? And my response is, okay, what strategic objective are you trying to achieve what will you get specifically from North Korea in return, if it's to make them feel less threatened? And which Korea has attacked the other more since 1950? Um, how are they going to act differently if they feel less threatened? Um, you know, I, I don't get an answer on any of those. So, I think on the and then there's the the po- possible downsides where it could further erode international. Uh, resolve in maintaining sanctions. If the war is over, why are we sanctioning them, and why do we have troops? And then the other one is the the security side, where it could lead to, a, a, in my view, a premature sense of peace on the peninsula, where it could lead to a reduction in the U.S. forces, et cetera, before you've addressed the conventional threat from North Korea to the south. So I, I argue against a peace declaration, but work towards a peace treaty, which was one of the five working groups in the Six-Party Talks, but have a peace treaty contingent on reducing the North Korean conventional threat to the south like we did in the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty. Yeah, I mean, I I want to go back and revisit
3: this comprehensive military agreement uh, that was uh, signed in Pyongyang uh, last September between the two Koreas. And, you know, there were issues, but, you know, in order for them to take those initial steps towards tension reduction – It really – it required consultations with USFK. Uh, There were complaints at the time that the uh, consultations were insufficient. Uh, But uh, the fact of the matter is that, you know, almost any uh, additional step towards reducing tensions or if they did a comprehensive military agreement, too, involving operational arms control issues – that would really require, I think, extensive consultation with the United States in order to pursue that uh, without risking uh, the security guarantees that are provided by the alliance. And so, I mean, in a way, the real counterintuitive question would be, okay, what if Moon and Kim decided to do a joint declaration of peace on the Korean Peninsula? What would happen in South Korea? Uh, I mean, I don't think that that uh, would would get support from the public, uh, judging by all of the uh, opinion polling that I've seen. It would be a huge mistake. And so I actually think uh, that um, we're lashed up in ways uh, that really uh, make U.S. cooperation in support of uh, tension reduction um, necessary as a vehicle by which to continue to maintain Uh, South Korea's uh, defense. Uh, And so I just, um, you know, I I, I think that we will be involved. It doesn't necessarily have to be an overt smothering involvement, but we will be involved. And I think that uh, uh, the political orientation in South Korea and U.S. interests are sufficiently convergent that um, uh, that is a process that will uh, require U.S. involvement.
7: Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Reagan Foundation. Uh, I have talked to few experts, uh, including one physicist, and they all say it'll take about ten to fifteen years to completely denuclearize in North Korea. So that means time is for them, not against. Uh, so it makes me wonder does north korea really have intent to denuclearize do, do they really mean it when they're doing things little things here and here playing games so point blank my question is do they really have a intent to to uh, denuclearize i mean it, i don't think so but if yes under what circumstance? Because if they want to denuclearize, they will come up. They have done it already, come up with a step one, we're going to do this. Step two, we're going to do that. Step three, they haven't done that. So it makes me wonder. That's my question.
4: No. No. <laughs> uh- Secretary of State Pompeo, who has boasted that he has met Kim Jong-un more often than Dennis Rodman, himself has said that Kim Jong-un has yet to make a strategic decision on denuclearization. Um, but that does not um, preclude the uh, diplomatic efforts to try to get him to that place. And I think that's that's the right way to go about things.
0: Yeah, I have to say – yeah, I mean, the, it's the debate on. I mean, a lot of people just say no. Next question, um, you know. And I noticed the, uh, the the South Korean speaker of the House is sort of counseling against uh, persistent skepticism over the prospect of North Korea's denuclearization. that thou shalt not be skeptical. Well, I think a lot of us are guilty of that. <laughs> um, but just to pick up on the the sort of the timeline issue, um, you know, I, on the one hand, yes, it'll take a. We will be there a long time of needing to have inspectors there, perhaps, you know, periodically, forever. But, you know, to denuclearize, you can do an awful lot in a short period of time if they are committed to doing it. You know, you can have, I mean, the, the arms control way of doing it is you need a, the agreement, uh, which has to be comprehensive and, and well written, Uh, unlike every previous agreement with North Korea. And you have verification protocols and destruction protocols. You have a data declaration. You have inspections of declared facilities. Then you have uh, a quota, doesn't have to be huge, of challenge inspections of non-declared facilities. But you're going to have, you know, treaty limited items being moved to designated destruction facilities even as you're doing the inspections for the data declaration. So, you know, you can have them turn off the on-off switch immediately. You can go in and inspect that, and then you can start, you know, pouring 10W40 motor oil into the reactor or whatever you'd need to start, you know, making it not able to produce anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, that you can start taking apart things pretty quickly or doing things that experts would say, look, if you if they do this, it's pretty much done regardless of it. All the buildings are still there. Uh, you know, so I think you can do a lot to significantly denuclearize Uh, not only production but the arsenal, quickly if they are willing to do so. And I I don't think we've seen any evidence yet that they're willing to do that. Sure.
5: Dave, it's your retired foreign service. I'd like to go back to this question of uh, working-level contacts and that. And I'm I'm wondering how you get from the leader-led process to one that's where the working level is leading Process, and particularly with North Korea, I, it, it seems like following the Hanoi Summit, there's just this. Everybody rushed out of the room, and you know who's going to follow up with North Korea now? We can do Japan and South Korea and some other, you know, European uh, allies in that. But what about any sort of uh, real working level kind of engagement with somebody in North Korea other than the leader? Uh, it, it seems like we're left totally, uh, what, uh, you know, on some sort of uh, rock in in the middle of an ocean with with no way to go, for, uh, you know, for the next step. Um, that's my impression. I was just wondering whether anybody had a better or more optimistic view.
3: Well, the North Koreans have to be willing to engage in the process. Uh, that's the first step. Is that they and and, and then you know after willingness to engage the working-level negotiator actually has to be empowered. So in the North Korean system, you know, the real challenge is that for the uh, negotiator to be empowered, the leadership, Kim Jong-un, has to have made a prior decision, right? And so that's where you're kind of stuck. Uh, And so you need – I would argue that you need contact and blessing uh, from uh, the leadership in North Korea, from Kim Jong-un in order for a working-level process to be able to move forward, but you also need the working-level process. And so that's the reason why the best way to do this is to combine a top-down approach with a bottom-up approach uh, in some form. Uh, And I would argue that in the North Korean case, the most effective way of doing that would probably be to have a senior representative and a team go to Pyongyang for talks with the working level, but also have the option of an opportunity to report to the North Korean leader on where the process stands. Uh, and it might take a number of iterations. Same thing on the US side. It has to be something where the US leader blesses whatever. But you know, we're really not in that you know, uh, uh, lane at this point. Uh, and actually, the risk related to the idea that uh, President Moon is going to come here in order to convince Trump to agree to a third summit is actually that it undercuts and short-circuits uh, the lesson of Hanoi that you actually need a working-level process in order to be able to proceed uh, effectively uh, at the leader level. And so that, I would say, is the, the biggest downside risk of you know, this particular meeting is the idea floating around out there that somehow uh, Trump is going to pop over and meet Kim Jong-un somewhere on the sidelines of the G8, uh, G7 uh, in uh, uh, Japan in June. Um, you know, that is probably I, – I, I have skepticism about that. Uh, but, if the, but if it's possible to get, you know, further I, – I do believe that further understanding uh, and illumination uh, and exploration with Kim Jong-un, you know, now that he's had a chance to reflect a little bit on some of his failures, could be useful. I wouldn't necessarily cut off the opportunity for even – there to be a a Moon Kim summit as a proxy vehicle by which to do some of that and to try to get things moving uh, in terms of restoring a dialogue process between the U.S. and North Korea.
0: I think, you know, right at the the end of the Singapore joint statement, it said the two leaders agree to quickly convene working group meetings. And then the U.S. will say that didn't happen for six months and it only started – you know, when we had an Oval Office meeting again and then the subsequent meetings were in large part logistics for the summit or the negotiator, North Korean negotiators authorized to talk about everything but denuclearization. So, I mean, I think, you know, Steve Began can be on the phone to Pyongyang and he's just sitting there listening to music. Um, so you need Pyongyang to actually be willing to have the meetings. Uh, I think North Korea would rather have another summit uh, because they think they'll get more from, from Trump. You know, but the problem is, you know, which Trump shows up at the next summit? Is it the Singapore Trump who is willing to sign a flashy agreement that gave away stuff and got nothing in return? Or is it the Hanoi Trump who's like, no, if this isn't a good agreement, I'm going to walk? So I, I I can't predict which Trump will show up at the next summit. I think we have time for one more because one of the panelists has to go at four. Hi, I'm James Martone from Sky News Arabia so I guess I do have to agree with those who express doubt that the uh, North Korean leader is, has anything to lose by by giving up nuclear weapons. I mean by all accounts he's he's mega maniac he does he doesn't you know he does whatever he wants i mean is is it really realistic to think that there's some sort of pressure on him diplomatic pressure his diplomats i mean you you yourself pointed out that are they going to tell him the truth or not? um you know what sort of is there is there any public opinion is he is he under any sort of threat from anybody or to go ahead and do, denuclearize from within are the are, do people have a say besides him in in north korea
3: i would argue that the only plausible pathway to denuclearization might be if there are internal constituencies that are starting to take hold. That recognize that uh, nuclear weapons are an obstacle to North Korean prosperity, uh, and that is a pro- That that and so I would actually argue that that's where the action is, and all we're doing on the outside is taking the temperature. And uh, you know, uh, a lot of our discussion about you know maximum pressure it, it can be a contributing factor, but honestly, you know, the real action is internal, uh, and we may be. Uh, um, a long way toward getting our answer for now. Um, we have to see. But I would say that um, not everybody has yet been convinced that we've got the final answer. Uh, and actually, the purpose of Pressure is to try to help shift constituencies in order to get the final answer, that help them get the right answer.
4: Uh, I think Kim is also trapped by his own rhetoric um, in that he so per- personalized the weapons program and economic prosperity that he kind of has to deliver. And the fact that the regime, uh, the North Korean regime media has touted, you know, Kim getting on the train to Hanoi, um, Kim, you know, walked, strolling through the streets of Singapore. Um, I think there, that, that he has, he, that he has in, in a little, in a, uh, in a certain way has, um box themselves in into making you know making sure that he has to deliver and i think um you know the external pressure is to create that internal pressure um in personalist autocracies um they're they're more likely to be um in the way that north korea is they're more the these per, these um these leaders tend to be much more risk tolerant um and have a high risk um level um in, in their external behavior because they don't have the, because they have a an echo chamber within that's just supports whatever the, the regime does. Um, and I think part of the, the, one of the elements of sanctions, um, is to create that, um, those fissures and some discontent for Kim not being able to deliver and to create costs internally for Kim to change his mind on pursuing nuclear weapons.
0: And as we, try to figure out what is going on in North Korea or what Kim is doing. It's like, oh, if only Kim would tweet, then we would know what, he, what he's thinking. Um, so anyway, uh, and we didn't even get into military exercises or too deeply in a congressional role. But uh, anyway, I, I've really enjoyed the, the discussion. I've benefited a lot from it. And I hope all of you have. So please join me in thanking our panelists. That
3: was great. So Thanks just very nice. Another two weeks.